UPS. Powered by Seth. Welcome to a special RPS presentation of what I like to refer to as the Contemporary Masters of Low-Key Soul. If you've searched the credits on albums by some of the younger contemporary bedroom low-key soul stars of the past decade, you may have noticed a recurring name in the keys department. Classically trained jazz pianist John Carroll Kirby has had his fingers all over some of the most celebrated recordings by artists such as Solange, Blood Orange, Sebastian Tellier, Frank Ocean, Harry Styles, Yellow Days, Caliucci's, and many more. His own solo albums have ranged from cosmic instrumental piano jazz to meditative and classy New Age compositions that should be sent to the outer limits of the galaxy to prove to extraterrestrials that Earthlings are capable of creating divine wonders. This year he released his fifth solo long player titled The Garden on Stone's Throw Records and co-produced Pleasure, Joy and Happiness, a sort of comeback album by Eddie Chacon, who many may remember from writing and singing one of the 90s ultimate and omnipresent radio soul classics Would I Lie to You with his friend Charles Pettigrew, who sadly passed away in 2001. After a long period of being disenchanted with the recording industry, during which time Chacon focused his creativity on photography, becoming an accomplished creative director for Ultra Magazine, the two musicians were put in touch through a mutual friend, bonded over contemplative and transcendental music, and got to work on making their own album. We managed to chat to both artists who currently reside in LA over the Zoom line. Introducing pianist, composer and producer, John Carroll Kirby. Firstly, I'd like to thank you for calming listeners as your professional creative mission. Where does this urge to create soothing music come from, John? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, it comes from my own desire to calm myself. You know, I think it took me um, maybe 30 years plus of my life to realize, oh, that actually has a profound impact. Um, maybe through listening to uh, great musicians like uh, Hari, Hari Prasad Charesia, um, the great Indian uh, classical flutist Ben Suri, I believe. Um, listening to people like that, you know, sort of made me realize the power of that stuff. And then through that, um, studying yoga quite intensely, uh, made me realize the, you know, the profound impact of, of being able to relax. Um, as my yoga teacher likes to say, he says, uh, uh, relaxation is the cure for all impurities, which I quite like. True, because obviously uh, in the United States, you guys have a strong workaholic culture. And uh, you hear of, of so many people who have so many problems with mental health and even physical health because of stress, overworking and stuff. Uh, and which is why I, am, I have become such a fan of your work, because 
you are the perfect antidote. Uh, all of your music, all the production you do for other people, it's really soothing and it's it's really necessary. Has this this crazy year heightened your your mission? Yeah, that's that's also a great question. I feel like um, you know this year, I, I wouldn't want to say has been fortuitous for me, but you know I dropped my album in April. Eddie dropped his album in July. Um, both super reflective albums, you know, um, and it, with the risk of sounding insensitive, maybe a, a perfect time to enjoy this type of stuff when we're all cooped up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your earliest memory of playing a, a piano or a keyboard for the first time? Um, this is funny. Yeah, so my, my earliest memory was was is quite late. Um, you know, I started when I was like 13. So as a pianist, maybe that's a bit late. And um, I went to take lessons with my, my best friend, who's still my best friend, just saw him last night. His name is Michael Dwyer. He took piano lessons from a guy named Rourke Honeycutt, who was a real spaz, like total neurotic dude um, in Pasadena. And and we would go and yeah, we'd play, like we, he'd teach me like how to play some song by the doors or something like that. Um, but then we would just, um, we just shoot the breeze a lot of the time, just be chatting, just bugging out, talking about concepts, talking about music, talking about life and stuff like that. So simultaneously, um, my first memories of learning to play the piano were accompanied by memories of also just learning how to hang out and, and chat, you know. And uh, I understand you brought your studio equipment into your home uh, when lockdown was announced. Um, how, how have you been extra productive in these times or is it have you been more or less the same as always um yeah i've, I've been productive yeah it's been okay um at first when i brought my studio in i was i was actually like pretty excited i was like why have i been paying for a studio these all these years you know when, when <laughs> i can just work from home but i don't know this is, this is a radio thing right but um, i can show you i'm in my bedroom right now <laughs> so it's like that and there's my bed there's my studio, you know, so it's a little weird, like you wake up and there it is. And uh, um, so that that's a bit strange, like, and it's also like, it's too easy to just be like, oh, I'll just lie down for a second and then boom, the night's over, you know. Um, but yeah, it's been cool. I, I got a nice view. I've got a, I got a great place here in Mount Washington. It's a cool neighborhood of L.A. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been all right. Um, I'm looking forward to the day when I when I can get a studio again and, and maybe have that separation. Uh, I, I think I work better like that in the end. Yeah. 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 Mm. I mean, I think one of the hardest things to do when you're a master of a craft is actually getting things done on your own without having like a boss or other m members in a band, shall we say, when you're solo. What kind of... Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. What kind of routine and discipline did you follow to get your solo albums, like My Garden, finished? Um, you know, so My Garden um, really came about when I, when um, my my A and R uh, Matthew David at at Stone's Row, he kind of just approached me. Oh, what do you got? And then I was like, Oh, I got this. I got this. And then I was like, Oh, that's kind of half an album. And I was sort of had these concepts that I didn't know were connected. Um, and then from there, I sort of finished the album. So um, in that case, um, you know, it, it kind of came together sort of, I guess, naturally, organically. Um, but other, like my previous album, Tuscany, I really just sat down and, 
and said, okay, I'm going to make an album today. Um, and, you know, that's a much different album and it's like just kind of improvised and it's really just two takes, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I, my strategy is that I just write pretty much every day. I try to write something. Um, and what's cool about that is that you have a bad day. Of course, you're going to have a bad day, maybe a lot of bad days. Um, but in the end, you'll come out with something, you know, so I try not to get too precious about um, writing a good song or a bad song because I know there will be both. Yeah, that's the thing. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> we'll, we'll write, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking when you're a teenager and you write like a poem and you'll look back on it 10 years from then and it'll be like super embarrassing. And then you yes. look at it 10 years after that. Like I was looking through my high school uh, stuff uh, this summer and some of it was like, actually, this is a reflection of me at that time. It's actually, it's, it's, it's not throwaway. It's not, it's not worthless as I, as I felt for a time. Do you have that? Do you have like songs that you go back to and you think, you know what, this actually has a context and a time and it does have value? Ooh, you know, that's really funny. Um, I was just thinking, so I, all right, my friend has a podcast called, Oh Yeah, Dude, They're Hilarious. And my <laughs> friend Jonathan Larquette and, um, and he, I don't know if he still does it, but he has a section where he reads his poetry from high school. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's really, I, it, it's really like, uh, it's really brave of him, I'd say, because I'm not sure if I have that, you know, that level of, uh, I'm not able to laugh at myself as much as that, but, um, and he had a whole like Rastafari phase. Oh my God. Up. Yeah. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cringy. Um, but at the same time, you know, then he, he sometimes hits on a, on something quite special. Um, I was thinking of my, my first band when I was probably 18 or something like that. And I was singing some of those songs. I'm not gonna, thank God it was, it was really before the internet. So I don't think there's anything out there if people wanted to musically blackmail me, but <laughs> um, I was thinking about that. And, and uh, I'm, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard, man, it's tough. Yeah, it's, it was, I feel a bit cringy about it, even though everyone in the, band was so great and, and most of them I'm still in contact with and doing great things um, but yeah I don't know it's tough it's tough to struggle with that and um, but in the end you know I guess it's um, that's what we have to do as musicians as musicians is we actually you know especially in the internet age we're putting out things that will presumably be around forever you know in a digital form and you have to put something out that you're comfortable with and um, you know, you maybe reflect back and be like, Ooh, that was a bad look, but you know, you gotta, you gotta take the plunge, I guess. What was happening in your life that compelled you to make conflict? Yeah, so conflict actually arose out of a, a conflict um, with a family member um, where I was just feeling down and, and you know, so, um, so embedded the conflict was, I guess, and so deep, um, not just the conflict itself, but you know, what's behind that, the relationships behind that, um, you know, that 
the amount of in, intimacy I've I've had with this family member. So it's, it was sort of, um, you know, kicked up a bunch of other things. And so when I was making it, I um, I was just thinking uh, about different um, different ways of approaching conflict, and then through that, thinking about you know people um, thinking about various conflicts in life. You know, and I, the um, the quote I put out for the record was from this MMA fighter named uh, Platinum Mike Perry, um, and he just really put it. Uh, eloquently, he said something like, um, you know, find it. He, he said something like, you got to find a flow like state and just sort of take the hits as they come. Uh, that was sort of his mentality. And that really resonated with me because it, it sort of felt like that. Um, but then also just thinking about other things like, um, like Civil War or, um, or like uh, World War II, stuff like that. Um, and thinking about, um, the death of Brandon Lee, you know, um, Bruce Lee's son and stuff yeah. like that. So it, it, it kind of just made me sort of try to analyze the various conflicts around us. And, and sometimes, um, and there's one, one of my favorites is actually walking through a house where a family has lived. And in, in a weird way, it's like the conflict of the, the conflict that's left over, you know, from someone else's conflict and their baggage and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's all pretty embedded the emotion on that, but, um, what I wanted to arrive at was sort of a, a middle ground between everything, not overly active or reactive or passive or aggressive. And on, on your 2017 album, Travel, uh, I love the fact you start off with Shofar, which gives, which has a very African feeling. It reminds me of Hailu Merzia's music. Uh, what was inspiring you at the time of making Travel? So that particular tune, um, I, I named it Shofar because um, I wanted to think of, of a music almost that you would project from your window um, to, you know, Shofar is sort of known as a, a a prayer horn, um, you know, made from a, I guess, what a ram's uh, uh, antler or whatever it's called. I don't know if that's the right term, but, um, you know, so I was sort of playing and I sort of imagined the organ on that sound, on that song, like, as kind of being the call to prayer um, and playing in a way that was sort of, um, I don't, I'm not going to say sloppy, but um, just kind of expressive, like a, like a, a wild brushstroke, you know what I mean? Um, and so that sort of made me, I was trying to sort of connect with that um, primal urge to communicate music in that way, like 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 through a shofar, you know, just blasting your sound um, in space to sort of summon people. Um, the album itself, um, I recorded a lot of it down in Belize um, in a really small town called San Antonio Rio Hondo. Um, kind of on the border with Mexico. Um, and I had met a guy down there, a real tripped out guy. Um, and he sort of had these huts that you could stay in. And and, and he was like sort of self-sustaining self, uh, farmer. Um, really existed off of like 20 bucks a month or something, you know, intentionally. Um, and so I went down there to write um, and was just using the space to sort of um, 
gather some imagination and you know think about these places that I might have been to or might not have been to um, but just rather than thinking about you know what the ethnomusicological um, palette of that place was more thinking of what the feeling was and how I could use my own palette to convey that feeling. As I said uh, before uh, we started the interview, it's it's been said of your music that it is the sound of growing up and living in California. Is there any other part of the world that you feel as inspiring to make music? That's a good question. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend about this the other day, um, and we were saying, "What? Why is all? Why do people flock to LA to make music? I mean, there's obvious reasons about the weather and stuff, but in the end of the day." Um, it's really just because everyone is here. You know what I mean? Everyone decided, all right, this is the, we dropped a pin. You know what I mean? Let's meet here. Um, I love LA and I am deeply inspired about, uh, by it. So um, it's probably, yeah, it's probably my number one. Um, Tuscany, like this, um, this album uh, I put out, that, that place is a big inspiration. Um, I take big inspiration from Mexico City, um, from Brazil been to Rio, <clears throat> Rio, Sao Paulo a few times. Um, outside of us, uh, outside of Sydney, Australia, there's a place my friend has a house called the Colo River, um, which I love. Um, let's see, Normandy, France, I take big inspiration. Um, Sicily, Italy, where my grandfather is from, uh, big inspiration. Uh, Tokyo, Japan, I'd say. Mm. And uh, probably a bunch more but uh, those are probably my top 10 what's the i mean what what's the most beautiful recording studio you've ever recorded in where you thought you know i wish i could stay here forever mm, we um went with um my friend dan stricker and sebastian tellier we have a band called mind gamers and we have an album forthcoming and uh we we had the chance to record in idra greece um in a in a place that um was an old I think rug factory or something mm -hmm. uh, converted into a studio and uh, Idra itself is so beautiful. You know, it's all built on the steps. I don't think there's a either allowed to have any motor vehicles. Um, so you can really, I don't even think you can have a bicycle past a certain age. It's like once you turn 10, you can't have your bicycle anymore or something like that. Um, so everyone gets around by either donkey or boat. Um, and so the whole, the studio was sort of overlooking the whole bay of Vidra, and that was probably the most beautiful. I understand you meditate. What, what steps do you take to create a healthy and creative vibe when you're in charge of the production? Hmm. You know, I, I don't think about that too much. I mean, I just try to bring my best, um, you know, and I, I don't really think of myself a producer like, um, you know, like Quincy Jones. All right, guys, here we are. Let's go in there. Let's go in the booth. Let's track it and really give it feeling. You know, I mean, that's not me because um, for one, that's just not the way people record a lot of these days. You know, the, the producer, so, so to speak, is often the musician, um, the engineer, uh you know the 
could be the mixer, the beat maker. You know what I mean? It's producers kind of just a guy with a laptop. Um, so really, um, that being said, I, I really just try to bring my best A game to the, to the session. Um, and I, and I feel like if I, you know, if I'm well rested and, and just in a good mood, I try to be, uh, then generally things go well and you're kind of ready for anything. Um, you know, that, be, and also that, you know, just quick shout out to Eddie. I mean, he's, he's always, uh, it's, there's no, no challenge with him. He, he's always, uh, he's always on top of his, uh, his vibe. As a seasoned composer and producer, uh, how can you explain the current youth's obsession with the low-key bedroom soul sound? Um, I, I think that's, you know, just a function of of what we're all working with, you know. And, and I think what's cool is that, um, you know, most people have a laptop or even there's this really great... Um, piece that uh, Steve Lacey uh, did a talk about how he was making making music off his iPhone even he doesn't even he didn't even have a laptop and he made his whole album off his iPhone it's amazing um, so I, I, I think it's just um, you know I, put it this way you know at, at one point in time youth would be in their room with an acoustic guitar writing songs well now they have a laptop and a way to sort of um, make the whole album on the spot so why not um, and you know kids are getting really good at it I mean think about like Billie Eilish's album I think made, I don't know made in her bedroom with her brother or something like that I don't, I don't know I don't know the details of that but that's my impression um, so yeah I think that's amazing I, th I think that's great um, and I think um, uh, I think that's what the internet is when it, when the internet is at its best is when people can make something on their own and share it with the world and um, and it resonates with other people tell me about working with dev Hines on blood orange how did that partnership come into existence dev and i met um through a mutual friend named chris taylor um from grizzly bear and we went to, um, we were actually, um, went on tour together um, in Chris's band called Kant. Um, and so we sort of got to know each other musically in that. In that. And then right, it was right around that time that Dev um, was had started Blood Orange maybe a year or two before. And it was just kind of um, really starting to gain popularity in New York City. And all his shows were so amazing. Um, he was just playing solo at the time. And then he, yeah, eventually put a band together and, and I was happy to join. Uh, what about Solange? Can we talk about Solange? Uh, I believe we can, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so after working with her on A Seat at the Table, you collaborated a lot more on her last album, When I Get Home, uh, which, as I must say, is getting even better and better every time I go back and listen to it. It's like fine wine. A lot of people 
play on that album, but once again, it's your synths and your vibes that stand out next to her vocal delivery and lyrics. You're like the caviar on a perfectly poached egg with fluffy blinis and smoked butter. <laughs> so, wow, thank you. Thanks for that. How did how did that go down? How did how, how, what's it like working with her? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing working with her. You know, she she really brought me in um, as a, as a keyboard player on a seat at the table. Um, which um, actually I think came out just four four years ago. I, someone just posted about that. And I was like, oh, four years ago. So, uh, I'm really eternally grateful for her, um, really, to give me that break. You know, because um, she didn't bring me in as a producer or a songwriter or anything like that. Um, we came in and and we worked on Cranes in the Sky, and I really didn't add much to that tune. Was kind of already done and sounding amazing, and I was like, whoa, okay, this is, this album's uh, going to be something else. And then a few days later uh in la she she had me come in and and sh she was playing me this um junie morrison song uh junie morrison i think was from the ohio players or had some connection to that or parliament i, I forget but had, had his own solo stuff which is amazing um and it's a song called uh, i believe it's called super spirit um and what's going on in the song is there's these all these layers of keyboards that just come in for one stab you know the synth comes in for one line one riff boom and it's out so it was like this big stack um and she says how do we do something like this i was like all right, okay cool um did a piano thing all right nice did a moog bass thing did a juno thing and just kind of stacked it up like that um and then and then from there i think we we got into a flow um working and and uh and that that led to um, when I get home, and and when I get home was really really based on a lot of jams. Um, a lot of the times it was just uh, myself, uh, her, and uh, John Key, who's a great musician, uh, producer, drummer, keyboardist, um, amazing guy. Uh, a lot of times it was just the three of us making the music, and an engineer, either uh, Nino or Blue, um, and we would just. Um, We'd just be jamming something and she'd be like all right cool maybe we work on it a little bit or move on or um you know she'd do stuff like she'd say all right give me the mic she'd go uh uh uh, uh sing a, um for a couple minutes <clears throat> she said give me another track uh, uh uh underneath and so she'd be kind of like you know how people doing a lot on on TikTok and stuff nowadays where they build their own acapella with their voice um so she would be doing that but composing in that way um you you know, stacking her own voice, making her own chords uh, with her voice. Mm. And she'd say, all right, cool, those are the chords and, that I'm hearing, so so go with that. Um, and just always really un unorthodox and um, not afraid to, you know, for her, I don't think we ever sat down and said, okay, this song is gonna follow the, you know, this standard song structure of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, etc." Um, it wasn't like that, you know, was, um, she had actually teased about releasing that album as a jazz album, you know, on iTunes or whatever. Uh, I don't think she did that in the end, but um, that, that was a lot of it. That was sort of behind a lot of the concept. I, I mean, I get the impression that she creates amazing energy with the people she works with. And uh, she's actually on record as saying that she was more focused on what 
people what she wanted people to feel rather than what she what she had to say compared to a seat at the table uh, could you give us some insight into her way of creating a good working atmosphere yeah absolutely that's 100 right um so one of the biggest things is actually we didn't really work in studios most of the time we were working in airbnbs um that she would rent um could be anywhere in in uh we worked in new orleans i think she had gone down to jamaica i didn't go on that trip um in la you know in maybe in the hollywood hills or we we had a great one out in um, topanga canyon at one point um so that that was probably the biggest thing and, and I, i'm totally with that you know like i was saying before a lot of times studios don't have windows they got some ugly leather couch um you know they got some cheesy purple lights and stuff like that so um so she had, had had really like switched that up and then and then the other thing that she would do is she was creating these mood boards um which really i didn't know it at the time but i can only assume were the um were the mood board to the visual accompaniment to when i get home you know so looking at um cowboys and rodeos strip clubs um low riders um crop circles uh um you know um outdoor art installations you know donald judd um that, those were probably the the big the big vibes that were up on the wall in the studio I'd like to hear your side of the story of getting Eddie Tacon's pleasure, joy, and happiness made. Uh, his type of comeback is very rare in the modern and hip music world, and you have a lot to do with his renaissance. How did you hear about him, and what was it that made you invest your time and effort into the project? So a friend of a friend of mine said, "Oh, um, uh, you got to meet this guy, Eddie," and um, you know, actually. I was just kind of actually I was traveling at the time and kind of busy and I and I didn't um you know I didn't reply silly me um and then he, my friend followed up again he said just trust me on this one like um he he's dope like he he's the guy who did um what I lied to you and I was like oh well okay all right all right cool cool um and so we met up for lunch yeah I was I kind of dropped the ball to be honest and, and fortunate enough that he followed up um And so we met for lunch and we just got to shoot in the breeze and um, and hit it off and then you know we we went and we listened to music I think in his car I don't know he might say my car I might say I forget we listened to music in someone's car very LA thing to do in the parking lot uh, for a couple hours and then um, and, and then from there we really became friends and um, and from there um, found a way to, to really make an album that I think said what we were both trying to say I mean, even the whole visuals and everything, the, 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 that beautiful studio where he's crouched up on that little kind of, uh, it's not even a sofa, it's like a little crevice in the studio. Uh, where is that? Where's that shot? I believe that's in South LA. I actually wasn't there for that. I love that. I love that. You're talking about in the, um, I think it's the Trouble. Is it the Trouble? One of those videos, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's in South LA. I, I wish I could say we recorded the album there. Uh, but it, it seems very cool. Um yeah, we we recorded in my spot mostly um downtown LA uh pre, you know pre-covid. And then also well speaking of crouching down we we recorded a lot of it in uh, in Eddie's studio which is um 
probably about the size of the interior of like a VW Bug or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's a it's a two seater for sure, um, and it's underneath his staircase, and he's sort of um, you know, Eddie's really popular in Denmark, and so he I, I think his friend who did it is Danish. Maybe I'm making this up, but it really has that sort of Danish modern, really. Um, really sleek, really uh, minimal design. So everything functions quite perfectly. If that was me, it would be just a pile of cables and chaos. But um, he's got this little tiny studio where we, we would track some of the vocals as well. But still, I mean, uh, normally artists overthink songs too much, especially jazz musicians. But your approach with Chacon deserves to be studied in Juilliard. I mean, what was it that gave you the confidence to let him improvise into the dictaphone and roll with that? You know, I, I think what it is, um, and this is a, something I struggle with, probably most musicians struggle with, I, I think um, maybe what, what I found with Eddie where we would hit a roadblock is that Eddie himself is so studied. Um, you know, Eddie Eddie studied all the greats. Um, Al Green, Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, Julio Iglesias, etc. Um, that it felt like if we thought about it too much, he might he might revert on, you know, some of his, his knowledge, you know, which, um, which seems like a good thing, but in the end, you really just want to get an honest performance. And, and that was some of the things we worked a, a lot on is just, oh, cool. Just let it come out, um, how it comes out, you know, don't, don't be soulful, like, um, in the genre, don't, don't try to sing it like that. Be soulful just in that you're, you're speaking honestly from the heart. It, it's it's just it really is uh, an achievement because it is laid back there's no as I say there's no overthinking there's no sort of uh, complicated lyrics no pretension it's just a man the microphone your keyboards your your arrangements all over it's 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 lush it 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 really is one of my favorite records of the year and and as I say it's the perfect time for this kind of music. Um, tell me about this new song you've done with him and Nyla Hunter. Yeah, so it's a song called High, um, coming out very soon, if it's not out already. Um, and it's, uh, it's a reflection, um, it, it's a, a song about um, being too high. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, you can take it a number of ways, but um, it's kind of a, you know, started about thinking like when you get too stoned and you you see someone you like but you you're too nervous to talk to them but it's also a song about maybe maybe being too high on one's ego to really uh lie prostate before a higher power um and so we were sort of playing around with that and you know um me and eddie were sort of you know his album had come out and we were just kind of thinking oh what's what what's another cool vibe and you know we were kind of looking at like bands like the Supreme Jubilees, I don't know if you know them, um, but kind of uh, soul, Christian gospel soul, so, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just saying, ah, in a way, I mean, you know, none of us are particularly religious in that sense, but um, just how cool it is to sort of be like, yes, the Lord, like the one, the savior, the God, you know, like um, how cool that concept is. Of course it gets, you know, distorted throughout history but um we were sort of talking about that and 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 using and, and thinking about those themes of 
in our own lives and stuff. And so that's sort of how high it came about. Thank you so much for joining us here on on this special presentation, John. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. What a big pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing soul singer and songwriter Eddie Chacon. Do you speak any Spanish? Because Chacon. Yeah, I'm. I am 100% Mexican, but I was born in Oakland, California, and my mom and dad in the '60s suffered a lot of racism and didn't want any of us to speak Spanish. So they, oh, they didn't want us to have any inflection or anything. So I never learned to speak Spanish, sadly, which is so regretful as an adult. Let's get down to talking to your amazing. Album, pleasure, joy, and happiness. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It really I, is. It really has been such a pleasure and joy. Uh, what helped you find the motivation to record an album after so many years and so many, uh, well, so many phases where you might have not been so much in love with the music industry? I think um, after 10 years of not doing music, I, I, I found myself missing it. Um, but I didn't want to go back to the tedium of being the guy who's engineering and playing all the instruments. I, I had just hoped to meet a great producer. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think, I think what was going the, to give you some context, you know, I was, I was feeling uh, a bit pummeled by the intensity of 24 hour news and the media and, and, you know, you, you really don't want to make records unless you feel like you have something to say. And I think for a long time, for those years off, I just felt like I had done what I wanted to do and I felt like I was super fortunate. And um, I just felt like, give someone else a chance. <laughs> um, and uh, when, when I started to feel pummeled by the 24-hour news and the intensity of social media, I started to feel like it would be awesome to make a super meditative and rejuvenating kind of records, something that would be a break from the chaos, completely the opposite of everything going on. And I started to think a lot about that. And I was also fascinated by the idea of growing older and not attempting to hide your age, but to see uh, how your maturity and age may have enriched your talent. Yes. So that became a real curiosity to me thinking, well, I'm 56 years old now, I'm 57 now, but at 56 years old, and I'm just curious, what kind of record would I make at age 56? Is there, is there, um, is there something that's happened that may have enriched my talent or given me a deeper 
a deeper voice. What I loved about what your album speaks is that kind of thing of just shutting out all that stupid noise, all that superficiality, and just like um, enjoying the moment, as as as, yeah. as you say. Yeah. And as and as you say, it sounds so contemporary, Eddie. It sounds, but at the same time, it sounds timeless because I can I can play it back to back with Sade's Love Deluxe or Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite, and it's a perfect afternoon if I listen to those three albums all in one. Uh, what did you and John Carroll Kirby talk about in that now famous meeting in a car park? We, uh, well, he wanted to know my story. And um, I think he actually showed up to the meeting uh, not knowing much about me, really. Um, it was a mutual friend who had a hunch that the two of us would hit it off. And he really hoped that John would want to work with me. Um, I myself was quite nervous about it, thinking, you know, I love this guy's work. He's just come off a couple fantastic records that are also very chill and meditative. And he seems like the right man for the, the gig. But I'm not so sure he's going to want to work with a 56-year-old guy that hasn't done anything significant in a few decades. Um, because he was having, like you were just saying, he was in the middle of his moment of being very hot and in demand. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, I, I have to give him credit that it's a brave choice for him to, in that period of his life, say, I'm going to work with this guy who's who hasn't done anything in a couple decades. But, um, so anyways, I, I told him my story and uh, over, you know, just a, a drink, a coffee at, at a cafe in L.A., and we just seemed to hit it off so well that it what started out as what I thought would be a quick 30-minute meet and greet turned into sitting in my car for two hours, playing each other's song ideas and, and seeds of what could possibly grow into something uh, interesting. And I, I remember feeling so comfortable with him that I actually was singing ideas to him and tapping out beats on my lap. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just, you know, once in a while the stars line up, right? Yeah. Wow. See, the, 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 I, 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 there's something bigger than what we're seeing here going on. And it, and this is just going to get bigger, Eddie. I can feel it because not, not that it has to get bigger. You know, we, um, I, I'm starting to question uh, ambition and, and all this idea of making, making things bigger and stuff. It's like, you know, when we're happier with less, um, yeah. but, um, the, the fact that you came from being methodical, you, you, you're a songwriter, you worked with, uh, with in, in recording studios, we worked with teams of musicians. All of a sudden, John Carroll Kirby like, gave you a different way of working. Uh, he gave you the tape recorder, the Shure uh, microphone, dictaphone, and uh, he had you kind of improvising. Was this the first time you've worked in this, this kind of way? It's more the kind of thing that you do privately when you're trying to write songs and trying to let yourself, free yourself up uh, to come up with something interesting. I mean, I always kind of feel as a songwriter that you're, you're almost like looking to channel the gods. I've always said, you know, like, like, how the hell do you write a song? How the hell does anybody write a song or come up with an interesting twist of words, whether it be poetry or songwriting or writing a book? It's, 
it's such, I mean, it's magical. And um, so not since really working in that way by myself, I never attempted to do this in the actual making of a record. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was very surprising to me. I have to be honest with you and say that I wasn't actually even aware that what John and I, uh, that we had started making a record. It was so kind of relaxed and I was just sitting hunched back, you know, sitting low in my chair, very lazy, watching him create these beautiful musical landscapes. And, and you know, suddenly I'll never forget, you know, he turns around and says, hands me the microphone which isn't on a stand and it doesn't have a pop shield and you know, there's no headphones. And he says, you want to sing something? And I'm kind of like, yeah, now? <laughs> yeah. And um, he hands me the mic and he plays the track. I'm listening, I'm sitting in front of the speakers singing and I'm just kind of using stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um, not really even knowing what I'm going to say before I say it. Um, and I, you know, the song ends and he says, yeah, I'm not mad at that. That sounds good. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and I'm kind of like, yeah, cool. So, you know, I'm driving home in my car and by the time I get in my car five minutes out his front door, he's already texted me a rough mix saying, yeah, good session. What do you think of this? And I would actually listen on my way home to what we had just done in my car. Boy. And it was just so kind of spontaneous and 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 had like an, an easy flow going to it. I guess that you could say you'd already done all the work, the, the hard work, decades before, becoming the Eddie Chacon, the Chacon that recorded this album. You know, by the time you went into the studio, you didn't, did you ever feel like that afterwards when you finally had the record? It's like, wow, it's true. The, the work was already done. I, I just had to hit play and, 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 and phone it in, literally. <laughs> I think that's a very, very good way to put it. I mean, there comes a time when you're no longer working to become who you are, but it's just time to just be who you are. Uh -huh. um, we always spend some, we focus so much of our lives on be, working on becoming. But I think there is a time when you're like, wait, you, you have, you've got this. And, um, and it did, it did, you know, after hearing back what he had sent me and it just seemed to just pour out of the two of us. I did get a feeling that like, this is, this is the way it should be. This is, this is, we're just doing what we do and what we're, what we always wanted to do and what we're meant to do. And it just felt so, um, it was a pleasurable experience. I also understand something that uh, piqued my interest was the fact that you mentioned Loraji to uh, John. Um, were you were you really deep into transcendental music? Uh, do, you, do you listen to a lot of that stuff? No, actually, I think it was John that turned me on to. Lor well, it might have been my wife uh, that turned me on to Laws of Manifestation. 
Um, yeah, um, I really enjoy Laraji, and I was getting very much into Juan Waters, Laraji, um, mm. and 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 I was very much enjoying the Solange records that John had made. They're, they they seem to have a a uh, a relaxed, easy vibe to them that I thought. I also thought those records were a nice break from the the intensity of what's going on in the world, even back then before COVID or any of what's going on now. There was all, the world was already just so intense at that time. Eddie, you come from a time when there were big budgets and, you know, a record label would pay for you to have the most talented musicians with you in a studio over a period of time. Are you, are you attached to the highest form of making art like it was in the old school when labels could afford this? Or does this low-key DIY way of getting the job done justify the art? Um, yeah, I think it's apples and oranges, you know, I, I, I can never choose one over the other. I think that they're both beautiful. It's beautiful to get in a room with people that have spent uh, their whole life um, on their mastery. The, and I mean, that, that, was, that was an incredibly memorable honor to be able to work with these great artists. Everyone in the room is a great artist in their own right. And that in itself gives you goosebumps too, I remember. But yes, to work with a guy like John, who's just, you know, he's also on that level and he's working in a more DIY way and it's just the two of us in a room and once in a while we bring in somebody to add a little sweetness here and there. It's, uh, yeah, one is no better than the other and, and I could, I, I'm happy and comfortable uh, working in both ways. I feel so fortunate that I got to live in both times and, and, and experience both of them because they, they both bring so much to the table. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, uh, I would just say that I have always really appreciate uh, collaboration. So things that are collaborative, that bring in the, your, you bring in the minds of, of other people and get other people's viewpoint and perspective on what you have going on inside of your head. I think that just goes across the board, whether you're decorating your house or, or choosing a, a, you know, an outfit to wear for the day. It's, collaboration for me is what it's all about, you know? I'm so haunted by the memory that I let you go. There's a thing that happens when we're all young, we all have bright and brave ideas, but we struggle to focus. But there's a certain ur urgency to get things done past a certain age, and we become less fussy, maybe. Uh, in your opinion, why, why do we get shit done easier <laughs> nowadays? Oh, God. Well, I think technology helps incredibly. Um, but I don't, I mean, I find with, I find with age, and you know, I think it's age. I think with age and maturity, you are able to, uh, you have a better understanding about what's important in life. So you're able to filter out the noise and focus on the things that really matter. Mm. Um, at least that has been my experience with getting older. And, and, and because of that, I would say that it's just a joy getting older. Uh, you're not so distracted. Uh, and you know yourself better. 
you know what works for you, irregardless of what is trendy or fashionable. Mm. You have an immediate sense of, ah, oh, this is for me, this is not for me. Spiral into doubt about the words we spoke. What are some of your favorite spots to hang out in, in LA, in Los Angeles? Which, which would you recommend for anyone visiting and who wants to just sort of chill? Not, not, such, not so touristy, just to chill and get lost in yourself? Well, I, I, I personally am, what attracted me to LA from San Francisco, Oakland, where I grew up was, I'm so in love with the, the history and nostalgia of LA. So for me, just, you know, a simple drive through Mulholland Drive that just goes endlessly, winds through the hills and ultimately winds up in the, you know, in the beach area. It's just fantastic. I love some of the, some of the institutions in LA that are just, to me, they're national treasures. Like, uh, it could be like an old steakhouse from the golden era of Hollywood, like Musso and Frank. Wow, Musso and Frank's, yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. to me, to me, these things are treasures, the Chateau Marmont, you know? Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, people people around the world may know of these things from movie scenes and from, from you know, you know, Hollywood tragedies and things like that. But I'm just really, after being here for over 25 years, I'm still in love with the history and nostalgia of LA. And that's what I think is so cool. But it's curious because a lot of people talk of LA, uh, residents uh, uh, from LA, talk of it as being quite lonely. Not, not Actually, I've never heard it from an Angelino, like someone born in California. I've always heard it from people who've moved from other states in the United, in the United States to LA. They, they speak of it being lonely and, and, and desolate. Uh, I was even watching uh, Zac Efron on his new show on Netflix where he was talking about, oh, I got to leave LA, you know, and, and escape these celebrity bad habits, right? Um, what is it that, that, that he, apart from what you've just mentioned, um, how, how do you cope with living in LA with that kind of... Um, loneliness? Yeah, loneliness. I definitely, when I moved here in 1984, I was 20 years old, I was... I was a suburban kid moving to the big city. I was I was leaving the the safety and comfort of my parents' house to live on my own in an apartment with a friend on Hollywood Boulevard and 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 it was exciting but it was incredibly lonely. And when I look back on it now, I think it was my ambition that made me lonely because I wanted to belong to something that I didn't have entree to. So you're you're shut out. You want to get in. You want to get in doors that are being slammed in your face. So you're being rejected and you feel dejected. And and I think that caused a lot of loneliness for me. And frankly, I was I was an awkward kid. And and I moved to LA and I didn't have any friends. And it's very different from when you visit a place and you seem like oh wow I'm going to be friends with all these people I just had a magical time with. And then you move to the place and you can't even get a hold of these people. It's different when you move someplace than when you're just a visitor for the weekend. Um, but yeah, I certainly understand that. I think I had some of the loneliest years of my life uh, living in LA, trying to get my, my, my music and my dream off the ground. So divided
continuing with this theme, you, after tasting those highs of, of, of fame and, and global success, uh, looking back, what helped you deal with the lows? When, when, you know, was, when the music stopped, shall we say? It was tough. I mean, you know, from an outside perspective, you would think someone would just be so unbelievably gracious and, and feel complete inside that they had had any opportunity to achieve their dream. But sadly, we're a bit more selfish-minded than that. And it does, it's not that easy. Yet, yes, I achieved a dream that I thought was the wildest, most outlandish dream anyways to begin with. But then when it was all taken away from you, it bring, it does bring a lot of sadness and loneliness and kind of like you spoke about. You go from being the hot ticket in town to just being wonderfully, you're like everyone else. So it becomes, it's up to you to, to you know, I think like a, it's a metaphor for life. You know, the tough times are really when you get an opportunity to define yourself and find out what you're really made of if you have the wherewithal within yourself to arrive at that. <laughs> but I have to be honest and say, I did not. <laughs> I started partying too much and drinking too much. And, 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 you know, there was a side of me that never wanted to stop celebrating what had happened to me. All the good, all the beautiful things that had happened to me, I wanted to celebrate them forever. <laughs> but, um, but you know, there was also, of course, there's there's everything in life is a double-edged sword. So I was happy on the outside, but sad on the inside. And there was a lot of loneliness and a lot of isolation and a lot of um, overthinking, too much thinking and trying to figure out what my next move was gonna be. And then shortly after that, Charles passed away. So I didn't have a safety net to go back to. I really was on my own. And, you know, I mean, you're really a one in a million if you ever have a one in a number one hit song in the world. And then you're a one in a billion if you have two. So it, it, was, it was a very tough time, to say the least. No. No, 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 babe. Working on pleasure, joy, and happiness. Uh, what did you miss most of not having Charles by your side? By the time I did pleasure, joy, and happiness, I think I was in, I, I, you know, like I said, I was 56 years old and I was operating more out of uh, a place of, of um, appreciation, graciousness, uh, I feel inside myself today that I consider myself to be a survivor of a very of a very tough business um, that has brought a lot of people joy, but it's also brought a lot of people tragedy. And I've lost a lot of friends um, over the years. I've been doing this for so long. So I was just really these days. I feel very, I don't, I feel zero entitlement. I don't feel like the world, that anyone owes me anything, but that's very helpful because it makes me feel very in the moment, very appreciative of what I have right now. And so that's kind of where I was coming from. Where am I, where am I right now? What's going on in this moment? How can I appreciate this moment? 
yeah, yeah. How can I make this moment beautiful? How can I create something beautiful in this moment with what I have today? Going all the way back to your teenage years and also uh, mentioning someone who sadly passed many years ago, you, you played in a band with Cliff Burton, who became very famous with Metallica, sadly passed away in a tragic accident, and Mike Borden from Faith No More. You had a band. Were you an angry kid into heavy metal when you were, were a teenager, <laughs> teenager figuring it out? Well, I wasn't really... We, I mean, we were just kids. We were maybe 14, 16 years old. I, I was the younger one. They may have been 16 years old. Neighborhood kids. Mike lived, um, Mike Gordon lived about five houses up the street from me. And we were friends. We, we were both latchkey kids whose parents went off to work early. And we had the run of our houses. And we used to make each other breakfast and hang out and play YouTube records. YouTube records. Uh -huh. um, and even back then, he was obsessed with Black Sabbath. And he was, Cliff was like a friend of Mike, so that made Cliff a friend of me. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the three of us, and then my guitar teacher, Wayne Newgrave, down the street, was like 17 or 18. He played guitar. Um, so he used to practice in my dad's um, trucking company office, an industrial park, so we could blast out our music. It was a lot of fun. We were all just working out. Those two guys were already incredible musicians, even by the time they were that age. It, it was quite amazing. Um, no, I was, to, to answer your question specifically, I was kind of torn between Led Zeppelin and Al Green and Marvin Gaye. I, there was a part of me that wanted to be a rocker boy, and the other part of me wanted to be a soul crooner. Um, and I really didn't get to uh indulge myself in the singing part until i moved to la when i was 20 and that's partially why i moved to la was because i was part of a very popular rock and roll scene that i was known as a guitar player and i no longer wanted to be a guitar player so in order to to not be seen in that way and be given a new beginning i had to move to a different town it was wrong it's a wicked world you're ever yeah. in Barcelona, look me up. I'm here in Elborn. Um, all my thing is all about eating and drinking fabulous wine here in the neighborhood. Hey, we're right on the same page. I would love that, man. I definitely will be making it back to Barcelona. Yes, please do. I'd love to uh, I'd love to chaperone you for an afternoon and stuff and show you the... the oh, the hell yeah, man. I would love that. We would love that. And uh, I appreciate you uh, having me on your show very much. Well, thank you so much, Eddie. It's been a, a you, real pleasure. You take care. You take care as well. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.